Well, <clears throat> this morning, uh, I don't have a particular portion of scripture that I'll be unpacking and working through verse by verse as I'd normally do, uh, but I trust that everything that I say this morning will, fa- will fall on uh, Berean's ears and it will be tested. Um, but I simply have one purpose why I'm up here today, and that's to give everybody here the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I believe that the gospel is the most important truth we could ever study, ever come to the knowledge of. And if there's one thing in Christianity we want to rightly understand, it's the gospel. The gospel is so simple that a little child could understand it, yet it's so complex that we could devote every Bible study, every Sunday service, every day of our lives to studying each element of it, and we still wouldn't even scratch the surface of what Jesus Christ did for us on that cross. You know, every single one of us, one day soon, will stand before God. God, the creator of the universe, God, the standard of righteousness, of holiness, and we will stand before him, each of us individually, naked with everything exposed for what it is, every thought we've ever had, and he'll judge us rightly. And that day of your life and my life will be the most important, most sobering day that we will ever, ever experience. And everything in our life is leading us to that day. So if there's one thing we can't afford to get wrong, it's the gospel of Christ, because that is the only thing that is going to help us on that day. And I fear that many of us in the modern church today or people who profess as Christians have a wrong view of what the gospel actually is. And to me, one of the most terrifying verses that I come across in the Bible is in Matthew 7, uh, when Jesus says, Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And it's... I'm terrified for those who profess Christ as Lord but don't actually understand the depths of what he did for us on that cross. And I would hate for any one of us in this room to be met with those words, depart from me, I never knew you. It would just be absolutely terrifying. So my goal today is to try help you understand what Jesus Christ truly did for us on that cross. And if I can better your knowledge of God and help you love Christ more, or even show you your need for Jesus Christ, then I've given you the greatest gift that I know how to give, or that I could ever give you. So before we get into it, I'll just pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you, Lord, that we can gather here today. We thank you for your word that you've so graciously given to us. And I pray that today, Lord, um, we wouldn't play games, Father, but that we would hear your truth and the truth would penetrate our hearts and we would be set free from bondage. And I pray, Father, that 
you'd use me to communicate the gospel of your son very clearly uh, so that people can understand. I pray that we would be pleasing to you today as we meet together, that we would edify one another, and above all, Lord, that we would give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, to understand the gospel, I believe that there are two crucial truths that we must first address before we get to the actual gospel. Um, These two truths are firstly the holiness of God Almighty and then the sinfulness of man. The word gospel in Greek is the word euangelion, and it simply means the good news. So before we can understand the good news of Jesus Christ, we must first understand the bad news of who we are. I believe we must first understand correctly who God is, his character, his holiness, his righteousness, his grace, Then we must understand who we are, our sin, and the sinfulness of our sin. And then, and only then, can we begin to understand God's love and grace for us. And the gospel actually starts to make sense. Now, there's a lot of ideas that I've heard out there in the world telling all sorts of nonsense about who they believe God to be. Um, But all of them are false unless they come truly back to this book and unless they come from this book. The Bible is is God's word, uh, undeniably. It's his word tried and true and everything must come back to his word. You may have thought something about God, a belief or even a feeling about God, but if your thought or belief or feeling doesn't line up with the Bible, then you must ditch that idea and cling on to the revealed truth that he has revealed to us in the Bible. And similar to that, we can't fall victim to a pick-and-choose mentality. Uh, We pick and choose what we like in the Bible and what we don't like. We must take everything that has been revealed to us in God's word, and in its proper context, we are to have our minds renewed by his truth. There is no picking and choosing when it comes to God. You either receive God for who he is, Or you reject God for who he is. And picking and choosing is rejecting him. It's creating your own God, your own God, which is called an idol. Now I believe there's a popular trend that has made its way around the modern church today and it's proved to be a toxic trend. And that's the trend of only preaching about God's love and turning him into a cuddly Santa Claus who everybody likes and loves. You know, I recently heard about a church who has their fair share in this trend. They only preach about God's love and are very much focused on not offending anybody. And just recently that's proved to be a real problem. For when a sermon was presented in this church on God's holiness, a biblical trait of God, the congregation turned around and said that they reject that teaching. They reject God being holy because their God is love and God doesn't display his wrath and God won't judge because God loves everybody. God's love is in no way a bad thing to preach on. For if it wasn't for his love and grace toward us, we wouldn't be here today. We would be rightly burning in hell as we deserve. 
But there's a problem. If we only ever focus on God's love, we get an incomplete picture of who God really is. The, the picture becomes one-sided and dangerous. And in fact, understand this, that we can't properly understand God's love if that's all we teach on. We must also learn and study God's holiness, his righteousness, his justness, and if we can get an understanding of those aspects and character traits of God, then God's love for us becomes even more clear and more profound. The Bible teaches us that God is holy. Do you truly understand God's holiness? Don't answer, but if I was to ask you to define God's holiness, could you do it? I'll give you a Puritan definition which I think hits the nail on the head. And that is God's holiness means that he has a perfect and unpolluted freedom from all evil. I'll say it again. God's holiness means that he has a perfect and unpolluted freedom from all evil. Another definition of God's holiness is the rectitude or integrity of the divine nature. Simply put, God unchangeably I want you to get this. God unchangeably loves good and hates evil. God hates, yes, God hates evil. It doesn't sound very politically correct today, does it? God hates. But you must know that he does. And, he, and what he hates is evil. And what is evil? It's sin. God hates sin. Please, let's all... Turn to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6, and it'll be verse uh, 16 to 19. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 gives us a list. Uh, it's not exhaustive, of course, but it's six things of the Lord, that the Lord hates. Verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, a hand that shed, sheds innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who declares lies, and one who spreads the strife among brothers. Or flick... Uh, with me to Zechariah chapter 8 verse 17 it gives us another example of what God hates Zechariah chapter 8 verses 17 reads verse 17 also let none of you devise evil in your heart against one another and do not love perjury for all these things are what I hate declares the Lord other examples you can read are Psalm 5 or uh, Proverbs 8, it gives you other examples of this. The point is, though, that God hates sin. And you might be tempted to argue with me 
but the Bible says that God is love too. Read 1 John or John 3.16 and yes, that's correct, absolutely. But just because God is love doesn't mean that God doesn't hate. You may say, but because God is love, he cannot hate. To which I'd respond to you, no, God is love, so therefore he does hate. If you don't mind, I'd like to use some questions which I heard from a um, sermon from Paul Washer. I think it kind of helps us understand the harmony of God's love and hatred uh, with each other. Let me ask you a question. Do you love Jews? If you love Jews, then can you be neutral about the Holocaust? No, if you love Jews, then you're going to hate the Holocaust. Or how many of us in here have children? Or at least a relative or mother, father, just somebody that you love. If somebody was to break into that person's home and brutally murder them, would you hate that? I'm not saying hate the person who did it, but would you hate the act? Well, let's say I was to show you a news article of a man who abducted a young child and, and abused them. Would you hate that? Let me put it this way. If you didn't hate that and acted indifferently towards such a crime then I would perceive you as just as much a monster as the man who actually did it. You see, because we love things means that we hate things as well. It's your love for your children or your love for your family that drives your hate against such things that would come against them and seek to harm them. You love morality, then you must hate homosexuality and the transgender movement that we're seeing. If you love babies, then you must hate abortion. Can you love babies and be neutral on abortion? Of course not. And if you don't hate abortion, I would think that you don't love babies. You see, so it is with God. Listen, God loves himself perfectly. He loves righteousness, he loves holiness, he loves justice. He loves mercy, he loves grace, so by that very fact, he must necessarily hate everything that is against him or against his holy standard. And scripture paints a striking picture of God's view or hatred of sin. It actually says that he loathes sin. And for God to approve of sin, he would have to deny himself, which is such an impossibility. So therefore he hates sin and he has to judge sin because he is righteous also. Does that mean that God is a God of hate? Of course it doesn't mean that. Absolutely not. He is love. But the very fact that he is love must mean that he hates. Which leads me to the second thing which I believe we must understand, and that's our sin. You know, do you understand your own sinfulness and the relationship of your sin towards a holy God. Romans 3, verse 23, and I'd like you to turn there.
Romans chapter 3. Verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, we are all guilty of sin. In fact, if you uh, go back to verse 10 of Romans 3, um, God gives us a shocking state of our fallen humanity, and we have to read this in light of ourselves because it gives us a reality check of how far we've actually fallen. It's Romans 3 verse 10. It says, As it is written, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understand. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. If you think you're a good person, then you're mistaken, and you're biasly judging yourself against the wrong standard. You can't judge yourself against the standard of our society because that's fallen too. We must judge ourselves to the standard that God sets because that's perfect. The Bible makes it very clear as well what our sin is. If you read verse 20 um, of uh, chapter 3, and take notice of the um, latter half of it, verse 20 reads, uh, Because by the works of the law none of mankind will be justified in his sight, for the law comes the knowledge of sin. You can also read uh, Romans chapter 7 just over a couple pages. And verse 7, Romans chapter 7, verse 7 says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. And then also First John chapter 3, verses 4. says that First uh, John chapter 3 verses 4 says, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And this is the clearest definition of sin that I could find. And sin is lawlessness. Sin is simply breaking God's law. It's living in defiance of God's law. Or you could say it's living like there is no law. Hence lawlessness. You know, God gave the nation of Israel his law, more specifically the Ten Commandments, not so they could obey it and think they're righteous before God. Yes, we should obey it, but no, we are never righteous by obeying the law. Um, As we read in verse 20, no flesh will be justified by the law in Romans 3. That is not the proper use of God's law, but rather he gave them his law to show them their sin and to show us our sin. Turn back with me to Romans 3. And this time we'll read verse 19. 
Romans 3 verse 19. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. The law doesn't help us, it just simply leaves us helpless. And it doesn't justify us, it leaves us guilty. How many of you looked in the mirror this morning before coming here? Think to yourself, why would you look in the mirror? It's to see any flaws, right? And to correct what you don't like. To make yourself presentable before leaving the house. You see, God's law acts similar to a mirror. We ought to look into God's law and it shows us our flaws and our sin. The Ten Commandments are found in Exodus chapter 20. And simply for the sake of time, I won't turn there, but we could go through every one of those laws and I could show you how each of us have broken every single one of them. But just by way of example, let me ask you this. Have you ever lied? Then God's law condemns you as a liar. Have you ever put something in the place of God or above God? Then the law condemns you as an idolater. Have you ever lusted, watched pornography? Then the law condemns you as an adulterer. Have you had sex before marriage? Then the law condemns you as a fornicator. I think it's something we must really pray about to actually understand the nature of our own sin. Like, do you understand your own sin? And then listen to this in Revelation Uh, Chapter 21, verses 8 says, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, which is the second death. And then we must also understand James chapter 2, verses 10, which says that even if you just break one of these laws, you're guilty of breaking them all. We need to understand our own condition. Do you understand your own condition because you have broken God's law? Look, it's not like you've broken the laws of some mayor of some little town or you've broken your friend's trust. You've committed high treason against God Almighty, God our Creator, who is infinitely good and deserves all the bit of glory we can give Him. You've sinned against Him. Do you understand that? If not, you must pray that God would show you the sinfulness of your own sin. For it is only when we understand our own sin then we can start to understand God's grace and love. And further that, we must connect these two points which we've talked about, God's holiness and our sin and the relationship between those, and that's what calls for God's wrath. And it would be rightly poured out upon us because of our sin. God would be right in giving us his full wrath because we have violated his law. We deserve it. The Bible says in Romans 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Like a worker's wages. In other words, because we have sinned, we have earned death. That's why we die. We die because we have sinned. 
We've earned our wages. Now, when we die, because we're in sin, if you're found in sin when you die, there is no place for us in the kingdom of God. And therefore, the Bible teaches us that there is only one other place we can go, and that's a place called hell, where you are punished forever. Now, hell was prepared for Satan and his demons, but it's the only other place where God's wrath or where God's wrath is poured out on sinful men. You know, God is a just judge, and as a just judge would look at a murderer or a rapist who is on trial with a righteous anger and a longing for justice, so God looks at the sinner that way too. No other punishment would satisfy God's wrath than to sentence a guilty sinner to an eternal punishment in hell, in the lake of fire, consciously burning forever because of his sin. That's how God sees our sin, worthy of that? It's very sobering. Did you know that if sin had its way, if the sin that's in your heart had its way and wasn't suppressed by any means of God's grace or anything like that, if sin had his way, it would kill God. Matter of fact, sin did have its way once and it did kill God. It put him on a cross. And if there's one thing we lack in Christianity today, it's we don't understand the sinfulness of our sin and the goodness of God. To steal the words of Paul Washer again, he says, and I quote, Man's problem is that God is good. God is good, and therefore he will punish sin. End quote. The fact that if God was to treat you the way you deserve to be treated... You'd be thrown into an eternal fire to burn forever, and some people will be treated and judged that way on the Day of Judgment. It's extremely sobering. But we must think and remind ourselves of these things because these things are true. I understand that these things are hard to hear, but there is no use in deceiving ourselves into thinking that everything is okay and everything's just going to turn out fine. Because for the majority, it's not okay. So this is the problem we're left with. This is what we're left with. How can sinful man be reconciled to a holy God whose holiness and righteousness demands that we be punished? Well, there's only one way it could be possible. And that's if somebody took our place. If someone perfect, someone without sin, took that punishment for us, and please, you must know this today, that that has already been done for us. You see, this is the good news. This is the gospel. That through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is possible for us to be reconciled to God. To have our sins forgiven. You see, God in his righteousness condemns our sin and must punish our sin, yet God in his grace gives us Jesus Christ to bear the punishment for our sin so that we can receive his love. Let me put it this way. If you're in a court of law and you're guilty of the crimes which you're being charged against, If someone comes along and pays your fine, even though you're guilty, the judge can legally let you go and can dismiss your case. So it is with us who are in Christ Jesus. 
the answer and the only answer that there is to man's problem is the person of Jesus Christ. Now this is the good news. This is the Christian message. The Bible teaches us that God is a trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ wasn't just a man, he was God in human flesh. God not only provided a substitute to take the punishment of his wrath for us, but he came down to earth taking the form of a man and he, as Jesus Christ, took the full wrath of God upon himself so that he could then turn to us and extend to us his grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, God treated Jesus on that cross as if it was you, as if it was me, our life on that cross, and then turns to us and treats us as he would treat Jesus. The cross of Jesus reveals God's perfect character to us, his love and grace for lost sinners, but also his perfect justness in punishing sin. One of the great hymns words it like this. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Such beautiful words. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And also the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 53 verses 10 that God was pleased to crush Jesus on that cross for our sake. Why? Because God wants to show us his grace. There's nothing in us that earns it, nothing attractive in us that God wants uh, to save us, but it was simply because he wanted to show us his grace. It's all on him. Grace simply means unmerited favor. There is nothing in us that deserves it. We have in no way earned it, but it is simply because God wanted to save us. And so that his glory would be magnified on earth and in heaven. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 8 to 9, says this. But God demonstrated... God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And then down Romans 5 verse 20 says that the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You know, the physical sufferings of Jesus when he endured the lashes, the walk to Calvary, then the crucifixion itself would have been excruciating enough 
But we must understand this, that there was far more that happened on that cross than just the physical sufferings of Jesus. You see, if the physical side of the crucifixion is all you know about the cross, then you know nothing about the cross. There's far more that happened on that cross than just the physical torture. You know, I believe that Jesus was so disfigured in the flesh, and it's because it's a testimony to us on how much God hates sin, almost giving us a picture of how God sees sin, as sad as it is. But more than that, when Jesus was on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, the Father forsook the Son. It wasn't just the physical torture, but it was the full wrath of God he was enduring on that cross. God judged him and condemned him. Jesus took the full weight of God's wrath towards sinners so that everyone who would believe in him didn't have to. Then at the end of his crucifixion, he said these three words, It is finished. Have you ever thought about those three words? Why would Jesus say them? Why would he say, it is finished? It's because the price had been paid. It is finished. The price is paid for the guilty. He bore on himself the wrath and paid for our sins so that we can be treated with grace and be set free. But also, it didn't end at his death. Three days later, he rose from the dead, showing that death has no power over him and all who believe in him. Then he ascended into heaven, sat at the right hand of God, and now reigns with the Father. Jesus is not dead. Jesus is alive. And he is offering you today the free gift of salvation. Your sins can be forgiven. You may, you may be listening to this and thinking to yourself, what is it that I must do in order to be saved? How does Jesus' righteousness be imputed to my life so that God would look at me and no longer see my sin but see Jesus Christ? I'll tell you, and please listen because this is very important. You know, although your sins have been paid for on the cross, that payment is not valid unless it has been met by two requirements. The Bible does not teach universal salvation, that Jesus Christ died on the cross and now that's it, everybody in the world is saved. It doesn't teach that. If you don't want God's grace, if you don't want his love, then you're free to go live in your sin. That door is wide open to you, but you must know this, that one day you will stand before God in judgment and you'll have his promise that you will bear the wrath of God and you will be sentenced to an eternal hell. But if you want to be saved from your sin and the penalty of sin... The Bible makes it very clear that there's two things, and these two things are not to be confused with works because they're not works. We cannot earn our salvation. But you must first repent of your sin and then trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. Repentance means to turn around, to do a 180. You were once walking in sin away from God. Now you need to turn around and start walking with God or to God. It is not a work, nor is it a striving to be good. You cannot earn salvation by repenting. Repentance simply describes what coming to God is like. You cannot come to God unless you repent. 2 Timothy 
chapter 2, verses 19 says that everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. And then Romans 2, uh, verses 3 to 4 says, But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and you yourself do the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you not think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Repentance is not to be confused with remorse for sins, which is a deep sorrow but lacks the positive note in repentance. Repentance means turning to a new life in Christ, a life of active service to God. And second to that, you must trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. You must not trust in anything else. You have to abandon all hope in your good works, in church attendance, in religious duties, anything in your own power. Nothing you can do has the capacity to save you. Only faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one, and you must trust him. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5-6 to six says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, that the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. In the modern church today, I also think there's been a rank plague that has swept through. And that's it seems to be popular to dumb down the uh, response to the gospel to simply repeat this prayer after me and you're in. You can search the scripture all day long and you never find that because it's not biblical. Did you know that just confessing Jesus Christ as Lord isn't enough to save you? Please, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. I want you to see something there. It's a true confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. Simply saying it with your lips means nothing. It must be true. Matthew 7 verses 21 says... Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. What's the will of the Father? I believe the short answer to that is found in 1 John chapter 3, verses 23. And it says... And this is his commandment, that we must believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. The will of the Father is that we believe in the Son, truly believe in Jesus Christ. And carrying on in uh, verse 22 of Matthew chapter 7. Many will say to me on that day, meaning judgment day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Notice they called him Lord twice. 
But then listen to what they said next. Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we perform many miracles? You see, they're trying to justify or defend themselves by their works. They had the wrong view of grace. They had the wrong view of works and a wrong view of the gospel. They were following a different gospel, a different Jesus. Notice that their defense or whatever, they didn't say, Lord, didn't we repent in your name? Lord, didn't we trust your finished work? Didn't we turn from our sin and trust you? You see the difference? The Bible is very clear that an exchange must take place. God, the Lord Jesus, is not something you add to your already existing life. He must be all or he is nothing. There must be an exchange of me giving over my life to him and then him granting me with his eternal life. Jesus also says in Matthew chapter 10, verses 27, he says, He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. We must lose our lives in order to be found in him. When you come to Christ, it is a surrendering of all your dreams, everything you've ever wanted in this life. It's a giving up of that list you want so badly. And it's stepping into the life that he has for you. It's coming to him with arms and hands open, not clutching onto anything in this world. And when you do that, he promises that he will forgive your sins and you'll be part of his family and his kingdom and he will give you new life. If you would turn from your sins today and trust in Christ, you have God's promise that he will forgive you of your sin and he'll grant you with a new life and a new heart to love righteousness. Does coming to God mean that I'll be sinless? That I won't sin anymore? Absolutely not. But when you come to Christ and you put your trust in him, you repent of your sins, you will no longer walk with sin the same way that you used to. It will no longer be your friend. It's, it won't be something that you love. You'll walk against it. You'll, you will despise it. And you'll even hate your sin. Of course, you may struggle because we live in the flesh and we haven't yet got our new bodies, but there will always be that battle and you'll never be able to live with sin the way you used to live with sin before Jesus Christ. Another question that some of you may be asking here today is, how do I know if I am saved? I've repented, I trusted in Christ a long time ago, but how do I know that I'm saved today? You see, the Bible never points us back, never points us to a, a place in time in the past to assure us of our salvation it tells us to test ourselves today. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 5. You can turn there if you want to, but it says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do, not, do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Now let me challenge you, you who say you're a Christian. Are you still repenting of your sins today? 
Have you still got conviction of your sins today? Are you still trusting in Christ Jesus for salvation today? You see, repentance and trusting in Christ is a daily thing. It's not something you did back then. It's something you do every single day. And in that, the promise of salvation, God's desire is to make you holy, and he will make you holy day by day. That's why he says that you'll know people by their fruit. Because if you are truly saved, then there is going to be a change in your life, and you'll be able to look back and see a change. You'll start to hate your sin and hate evil and love righteousness will be conformed to the image of God. We will love God and the true God, not an idol. First John chapter 1, verses 6 says that if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of Christianity, is not about being wealthy or healthy as some people have perverted it to be today. It's not about prosperity of earthly things. It's not about making you rich or avoiding sickness. It's not about you living your best life here on earth. It's about God saving sinners. Jesus Christ has paid for your sins. That is the gospel, the good news. And God's desire is to make you holy just as he is. And he will make you holy if you're willing. The question is, are you willing today? Are you willing to leave your sin? Now, I'm not going to end with an altar call or a Peter prayer after me, you know if what the gospel of what I've said has convicted you and you know if you need to get right before God. And let me just say this, if you have no assurance of salvation, maybe it's because you're not saved. And please, I beg you to get on your knees before God and repent and trust in Christ before it's too late. Please don't waste any time. You see, God is willing not to give you what you deserve. He is willing to give you what you don't deserve. The Lord is merciful, and just as much as he loves holiness, he loves righteousness, he also loves to save sinners. Please understand that. Oh, Heavenly Father, I give you thanks. For your gospel, Lord, I thank you so much that you would send your son to die on a cross so that we can be saved. I thank you, Lord, that it's nothing that I have to do to be saved, Lord. There is no religious practice or works that I must do, but it is a free gift that you give to us. And Lord, I just give you thanks, give you glory for what you have done and what you continue to do. May we glorify you with our lives, Lord, until 
one day our faith becomes sight. In Jesus' name, amen.